0: Well, the title of this morning's sermon is You Prepare a Table Before Me, and before me didn't fit on the screen. You prepare a table before me. And you're thinking about Psalm 23. We've been working on it now for, I think, seven weeks. I think this might be our eighth week here on Psalm 23. We're getting into the last two verses of Psalm 23. And what I was struck by, and it'll come out here as we talk about it a little bit more, is what kind of, how good God is. And what I mean by that is he communicates his truths through repeated examples, through a lot of different people, through a lot of different ways in his word. And he does that, I'm convinced, because we're so hard-headed and thick-skulled that we just don't get it. And so he's such a good God that he says, I'm not just going to give you one opportunity to recognize these truths and these principles. I'm going to, in the narrative of the word of God, I'm going to repeat these truths and principles over and over and over and over and over and over again, such that if you would just simply make a intentional choice to have an interest in my word And to spend some time in this book that you you won't be able to help but to catch the biggest principles anyway or the major themes anyway because they're going to be repeated over and over and over again. And I'll give you different characters that will help bring this out. Illustrations that will bring this out. Metaphors that will help teach these truths. And so no, no matter what your learning style is I'll give you a bunch of different ways to get a hold of some of these truths. And of course, we know the primary truth from Psalm 23, at, at least as we've been bringing it out. Maybe there's, there's more, but is found in verse 1. That because the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. I shall not want. I lack nothing. Written by a man of faith. So, not a psalm about how do I become a man of faith. That's through faith alone. In God's provision for man's sinfulness alone. So we have to say it that way in terms of the Old Testament. In the sense that Jesus Christ had not yet been revealed. The specifics of the cross, the the details that we now know of weren't known then. But what was known is that man was sinful and apart from God, making a way to provide for that sinfulness, to provide a future redeemer, a savior who could take the place of the guilty without substitution of an innocent in the place of the guilty and faith in God's provision to meet man's problem or sinfulness that man could never be put into a right standing with a holy God. And David understood that. He was a man of faith who understood that principle. And as a man of faith, this is written from that perspective of a walk of faith or living the Christian life. So as David seeks to summarize some of what he's learned in living the Christian life. It's this emphatic statement, because the Lord, because you are my shepherd, I lack nothing. You've provided absolutely everything that I need. And then we've brought out that, using that illustration of a shepherd providing everything that sheep need, knowing that sheep are absolutely hopeless and helpless, apart from the provision of the shepherd. They're vulnerable. They are easily misled. They're fearful. They don't wander in the right places. They can't even decipher what they should be eating. They'll eat clumps of dirt. They'll wander into frigid rivers. They cannot undertake for anything to keep themselves even alive. So the shepherd has to provide everything that the sheep needs. The sheep, when cast on his back, can't even get back on his feet. And neither can you and I. And so we've had this picture, this symbolism this illustration of a shepherd and sheep. As God wants to show us that apart from me, you can do nothing. Same exact principle as what you're seeing in John 15 about these abide, the abide principle. If you stay connected to me, if I'm the source of all of the power and the nutrients, if, I'm, if it's my power, my nutrients, my provision, my protection working through you, if you're connected to me, so in that we also have the presence of the Lord. If you're in my presence... Then you'll thrive. There's nothing that you can't do. But apart from me, he says, you can do nothing. And so that principle being illustrated in a different way in Psalm 23, using the shepherd sheep motif with David having all this experience as a shepherd. But this is what we're going to, I hope you're blown away by this as I was. But God in this single Psalm, he's trying to show that point. But he's like, maybe these aren't sheep people. Maybe they're not shepherd people. Maybe these specific illustrations that I've been drawing or comparisons I've been drawing between shepherding and Christian living, in that case, a walk of faith before the church age, faith living, let's say it that way, maybe they're not making those connections because they're just not familiar enough with the way of the sheep, with the way of the shepherd. He says, in the same psalm, I'm going to show the same thing and I'm going to switch tactics. I'm going to give another picture. Now I'm going to give a picture of a host. A host who has a very favored guest and is going to put on a feast, a banquet for him. Another way of showing the exact same thing. That it's God who provides for our every need. That with him on my side, with him for me, I lack nothing. I don't have to worry about anything. And so I find this to be just spectacular that within this same psalm we're not going to end these last two verses but especially verse five here he's going to give just a alternate way of seeing or saying the exact same thing and so we've looked at six specific examples of how God provides for the specific individual needs of the sheep and a lot of different things have come out of that as we looked at he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me to safe places you would say there he leaves me to a place where i can rest he makes it possible for me to rest he leads me beside the still water he brings me to resources that i need not resources where the water's moving too slowly where the water will be dangerous for me to drink not to places where the resources are moving too quickly well it'll be dangerous for me to take a sip of that nourishment that's being offered to me but to just the perfect kind of water that will feed my soul and will nourish me, will replenish the the thirst that I have. And Jesus, of course, uses metaphors of providing water, the water of life. How he says, if you drink even, he says to the Samaritan woman, if you drink of the water that I offer you, you'll never thirst again. This idea that I am the kind of water you need to be drinking of. So he leads me besides the waters. He restores my soul. And we talked about the primary application there being that he's bringing me back into a place of fellowship or restoring that relationship with me, bringing me from even a place of danger or a place of wandering back to a place of intimacy and closeness. He restores my souls. He's the one who can patch up the brokenness that I'm existing in or living in, the things that are hard at times that I'm going through. He can restore me as I'm hurt, as I'm damaged, as I'm wounded by even friends, as I'm wounded even by family, as I'm wounded even by enemies, as I'm wounded by myself, as I have a lot of self-destructive behavior in my life and thinking in my life, he can patch that back up. He can restore that like a medic on a battlefield. But then he leads me in the right paths. He leads me in the right paths or the paths of righteousness. Why? For his name's sake. And we had that kind of funny take on that Because that's the kind of God he is. Why would he do this? Because that's his very character for his namesake. He has a reputation for being a good God. And he's not good and faithful some of the time, but he's good and faithful all the time. Then he moves on to, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death in proximity to something that's very dark where the sun isn't shining. Now, who's leading me there? Well, we brought out that It's my take on this that this specific example is he's leading me in the paths that are right and sometimes they involve going through dark places, dark valleys. But why have I no fear in those situations? I have no fear as he leads me through those dark valleys because you are with me. You are with me. Then we talked about your rod and your staff, they comfort me last week. How the rod was primarily focused on defense against the enemy that would be attacking from outside. And the staff was primarily concerned with a few things. Direction, correction, and rescue. As he would nudge the sheep with his staff. Thin staff with a crook on the end sometimes. Long thin staff often with a crook on the end. Other times he would what? Correct. He would correct the sheep with the whack to the rump. The whack to the rump. And then other times he would use the hook to rescue them from danger that they would gotten themselves into. So we had direction, correction, and rescue there. And as we looked at how that is comforting, that provides me comfort to know he's protecting me against external enemies and threats. And he's also protecting me against myself, providing for me, directing me, rescuing me when I fall. Does that provide you comfort? Have you been meditating on that in the last week? Or was it... (laughs) For those of you online, that was in one ear, out the other ear, that little sound. (laughs) Like an arrow flying through the sky. It paused just for a millisecond on its way through. Thinking of these things provides comfort, friends. That's what the word of God is given to us for. Now we continue with, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. So we see as I talked about already the psalmist now shifts his focus a little bit or the figure changes or the illustration changes in this verse the figure changes from Yahweh or God being the shepherd to God being this gracious host so God the host generously treats the psalmist as his guest in this illustration here in verse 5 and we're going to see that there's three parts to that he's going to prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemy A part of that same host and guest interaction for a great feast would be, you anoint my head with oil to the point where my cup is running over. That great feast where a host has set a banquet in front of the guest who is deeply regarded. The guest that is loved. And so there's this change in this language. So let's dig into that illustration here a little bit more this morning now we have as we have previously we've seen all of these personal pronouns so david switched he talked more in the abstract of he in terms of the lord or yahweh so he makes me to lie down he leads me he restores my soul he leads me for his namesake Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, though, when I'm walking through that dark places, he makes a little change and he now says, you. As if he's now talking, he was talking about God and now he's talking more to God. Now he's not talking to to you as the audience anymore so much as he's saying this directly to the Lord. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He sticks with this theme now for verse five. You prepare a table before me he's not saying that about god he would say he prepares he's if, if that was the case he's saying you and he's talking to god there's some there's this little intimate moment tucked into the middle or towards the end here of this psalm but it's sort of the middle because we still have verse six to come so again it's still a reference back to god yahweh god's personal name the lord the good shepherd but now he's going to be the host the good host The one who's preparing this feast or this banquet in front of David, but this personal language. And I've said it before, and I think, I hope it's coming out clearly as you see all of those personal pronouns that any walk of faith for it to be successful, it has to be intimate and it has to be personal. You're not going to have a walk of faith that isn't intimate. For if it's going to be successful. You'll have no, you're not going to thrive in your spiritual life by keeping God at arm's length. And it's just like you think about, if you're a football people, you see that. As somebody is running with the ball, oftentimes they're seeking to avoid being tackled. In order to do that, what do they do? They stiff arm. They stick their arm out to try to put it up against usually the face mask or the chest or the shoulder pads of the defender who's trying to tackle them. Are, are we doing that with God? Where we keep him at arm's length? We want to be in his proximity to enjoy the bounty and the blessings that he has promised to those that are his children. But we don't want to be so close that we would risk him actually having direction over our lives or control over our lives. That we would actually be yielded instruments in his hand. We don't want to risk that. Well, why? Well, that would be the end of our plans, <laughs> That's why that's so scary. Because to give him control would mean I'm not going to be in control. Because to yield to his plan for my life would mean giving up on my own plans for my own life. Oh, is the cold sweat running down your forehead just even thinking about that? That's so scary. I'm saying that tongue-in-cheek a little bit, obviously. But isn't that the number one enemy? Isn't that the number one fear? To really trust the Lord means I have to give up on having control. You're a bunch of control freaks whether you know it or not. I'm a control freak whether I'll admit it or not. But I just did admit it so that's a step forward. I'm a control freak. By nature man wants to be in control. That's the problem. And so, as you're looking at this idea of this intimacy between you and the shepherd and God, between you and the host, it involves giving him control, giving things over to him, letting him lead, letting him direct, letting him have his way. And you say, But how can he have his way and I still have my way at the same time? You can't, it's not possible. It's either his way or your way. But I guess I'll guarantee this, friends. His way is much better than your way. And that's because his thoughts are much higher than your thoughts. And his ways are much higher than your ways. He's infinite. So he knows a path that is going to be better for you. There is a way that seems right to you. But he knows the right way for you. Because he's the infinite sovereign God of the universe who's all-knowing, he's all-powerful. And so that's this sense of you here, this intimate and personal God that David sees his God as, intimate and personal. Now the other thing I want you to see about you here is that just like with he, David is continuing to put the focus on the one producing the action in any of this is God. It's God who undertakes to produce the action in all of these examples of provision for God to meet your needs. It's not God, gonna, he's going to provide some of the things you need and then he's going to give you a little bit of a list of chores that you need to accomplish to provide for the rest of your needs. No, in each example that we go through, he makes, he leads, he restores, he leads. He is with me. It's his rod and staff that comfort me. Now we're to you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. All of the action, all of the providing is one-dimensional, one-directional, I should say. God is the one who does the producing of the actions that are necessary for you to thrive. You can't do it for yourself. It it involves, again, that, that needing to learn to let go, to give up that control. But now we get to the guts of it. We've seen you before. I don't want to spend a lot of time there, but I hope you're continuing to see that theme. But you do what? In this instance or in this example, you prepare a table. Prepare a table. So prepare, not a word that's difficult, to arrange, to set in order, or to get ready. You get ready the table before me. The table here focuses on the abundance spread out for the guest's nourishment and refreshment, not the physical structure itself. The idea here isn't that God could set up a blank table in front of you or he could drag a table into a, in front of a seat that you're seated at. No. The prepared table is talking about a table that's full of everything that you would need to be nourished and refreshed. And in this context, he is preparing the table so God is taking the role of the host of this banquet or this feast or this dinner party And so you prepare a table. That's the focus there of table. It's a general reference, if we're looking at it more generically, to God's provision and blessings in the believer's life. And so, in many ways, it could be similar to verse 1, that because the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. In this case, you would be saying, because the Lord is the host of this party of this celebration, of this dinner feast, there's not going to be anything missing. So it's a repeat of verse 1 in that sense because the table is going to have a variety of things attached to it. This idea is going to have a variety of things attached to it in terms of God's overall provision to meet the need of the man of faith. In this case, the guest at this feast that is being set up. And again, the picture is one of a host providing a meal or a feast for his guest. And there are several beneficial aspects of being the honored guest of a caring host. And I think this is, these two words are important. Honored guest, you could say, this might have been a better way to put it, beloved. A beloved guest. And, and a, somebody who the host views as important. He has a concern and care for, a compassion for this guest. But then it's this caring host. So you're the beloved guest and he's the loving host. A caring host. A compassionate host. There's a bunch of beneficial aspects to coming to a a feast or a grand dinner celebration, which is the picture here. As... The loved, beloved guest of the loving or caring host. And there's a couple of whom I want to bring out here. But one is this. Well, these are the three of them. Sorry. And then we'll break them down. There's an aspect of provision. There's an aspect of presence. And there's an aspect of protection that are these desired qualities or beneficial aspects of being at this particular table that's set before you. Provision, presence, and protection. Now, that is very similar to some of the things that have already come out as specific examples of the benefits of being a sheep in the sheepfold of the good shepherd. It started with the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep, and then beyond that, the good shepherd provides for every need of the sheep. Now, what were some of those needs? Provision, food, just basic nourishment. How does God do that in our lives? Well, spiritually, he does that through his word primarily, through teaching, of his word, through fellowship around his word, through prayer, communication with him. So we have provision there. Physically, he provides for our every needs. My God will supply all of your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. Not some, all. Does that include physical needs? Yeah. Foxes have holes. Birds have nests. He says the son of man has no place to lay his head, so those who you who are tempted by the prosperity gospel message, I'm not sure how you would square that passage, the king of kings and lord of lords, Jesus had no place to lay his head. Certainly, if everybody was entitled to some sense of physical prosperity in life, riches and wealth, a name it and claim it kind of an approach to Christianity, Jesus himself would have come with a little bit more pomp and circumstance than that. He would have lived a little bit more regal life as he walked on the earth. He wouldn't have grown up with his dad struggling to provide for the family as a carpenter. I say struggling in the sense that you don't have this picture of wealth associated with Jesus' upbringing, though there's very little information given about his upbringing. But when people say, is this not the carpenter's son? As he was speaking in the temple and revealing truths that nobody had understood or had any insights into and they were amazed, they're saying, "Is is this not the carpenter's son? They're saying that with kind of open disdain. Like, this isn't something they had a great respect for, his lot in life or his spot in the hierarchy of society. He wasn't high society. So in any event, I don't know how I got on that. Jesus is, oh, Jesus is saying that I will provide for your physical needs. What you need though, not necessarily what you want. The disciples went out. He sent them out without anything. We talked about that. He sent them out without any kind of physical provision, no money, no, no extra change of clothes, no food. He said, I'm going to provide for your needs. Will you trust me? Some of them probably did. Some of them probably said, remain skeptical. But there comes a time when he questions them. They're again doubting him. And he says, when I sent you out with nothing, did you lack anything? Did you lack anything when I sent you out with nothing? And they say, no, nothing. We lack nothing because he did provide. Now, was that in the sense of a spiritual provision? No, it's physical provision. So there's a part to that too. That's how we got into that. But it's primarily focused, again, on providing for the believer's spiritual needs. So we have provision there in that sense. Then presence. Where have we seen that before? Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil because you are with me, for you are with me. It's the shepherd's presence with the sheep that allows them to rest. We brought that out as we went through a number of those different passages, Or phrases, I should say, in Psalm 23, 2 through 5 here. So we have provision, presence, and protection is going to be another aspect of preparing a table here. Now we have that aspect that we just covered with the illustration of the shepherd and the sheep. With thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. There was that aspect of protection. So we have provision, presence, and protection. Now in this picture of a host and a guest at a dinner feast, the host feeds the guest. Naturally, that's a part of what you prepare a table before me entails, is that the table would be littered with all kinds of different choices to meet the various needs of the guest, to provide food, sustenance, to provide refreshment, something to drink, something to eat. So we have the provision there. Then, in this picture or illustration, the host would be present with the guest. There's this aspect of fellowship. I think it's easily overlooked when you read this phrase You prepare a table before me. Has this very personal and intimate idea of not only has the host undertaken to put the spread together, put the meal together, but the host does what? He sits down for intimate fellowship. After preparing the meal with the loved guest or the beloved guest, the loving and compassionate and caring host doesn't just set a spread before the guest and then leave. He goes through all of that effort with what purpose in mind? So that he can then sit down and break bread and enjoy a meal with somebody that he has a great interest in and a great concern for. When you invite somebody over to your home that you care about or you have some compassion or concern for, and you take the time to put a meal together, does that involve some effort? Is that can that be a real task? Can't be hard? Especially if in conjunction with that you gotta you know, feel the need to tidy up the place a little bit. We don't ever want anyone to know how we really live. We're so phony, man. No, it's for good measure. I mean, you don't really want to have somebody coming over and picking up some kind of a disease they'll never shake, so you clean up a little bit. Then the meal gets put together, but what's the underlying focus of it all? Interaction, fellowship, that you're going to have this intimate conversation, this this. Time spent over a meal. Living life and catching up with somebody through conversing and interacting with them. I think that part easily could have gotten lost here as you think about this language here. So we have the host fellowships with his guest. Then the last one is the, hopes, the host keeps his guest safe. When you're under somebody else's roof, they assume the responsibility for safety. There's this sense that when I come into, and in this case, where there's danger lurking, I would come into your fortifications. I would, I would come in, If I was to come into a, a place that you had already taken care to defend, I could rest. I wouldn't be the one primarily responsible for the defense during that meal. I'd have that opportunity to just rest and relax under the protection that the host provides. And we'll talk about that briefly in a second. You see, naturally one tends to focus first on the food when reading this passage. That's always been the case for me. You prepare a table before me. You focus on this great spread of food. And that's, that's natural. And it's perfectly fine. Nourishment and sustenance are critical to any walk of faith, too. They're not, that's not missing here. That is a part of this, but it's not the whole part of it. You have the pr- presence and the protection of the host, too, that are on display just as they were with the shepherd and sheep illustration. You need nourishment. You need sustenance. But there's equal importance that should be placed or ought to be placed in the access to communion with God himself, which is pictured here. You prepare a table before me has this language of access and communion to the God of the universe, the great shepherd, the good shepherd. It should be somewhat overwhelming to even think of that aspect of what the psalmist is writing here. You prepare a table before me. I have access to God himself to dine with him, to fellowship with him, to live life with Him, to have this intimacy with Him. You have the opportunity to dine with Him. That's the idea. As a man of faith, God is constantly saying, you have the opportunity to pull up a chair at the table that I have prepared for you. Come sit down. Get nourished by abiding in me. Enjoy fellowship over a meal with me. Enjoy the protection That you can have by pulling up a seat at the table that I have prepared for you. It's always there. It's not occasionally that this happens. The table remains fixed. It remains available. Amazing to think about that. Turn, if you will, to John chapter 21. I want to show a complimentary passage here. It's complimentary in a number of different ways, but I came across it as I was studying this. I was just thinking about maybe a New Testament example with Jesus of you prepare a table before me. And this is what came to mind. I'm not saying that's a perfect connection or cross-reference. But Jesus cooks his disciples breakfast. Now, how many of you miss breakfast this morning? <laughs> me too. I don't, eat, I don't generally eat breakfast. You guys make me too nervous. I can't eat and then get up here. You naturally, you think of the food part of the table, right? You prepare a table before me. But Jesus, in this just fascinating passage, he cooks his disciples breakfast. And you think about this unique God man, the sovereign God of the universe, is going to make a little fire and cook breakfast for some of his followers. Let's read it, starting verse 1. After these things, Jesus, this is after his resurrection, Jesus showed himself again to the disciples at the Sea of Tiberias. And in this way, he showed himself. This is how he showed himself, by cooking breakfast for the disciples. Simon Peter, Thomas called the twin, Nathaniel of Cana in Galilee and the sons of Zebedee. And two others of his disciples were together. Simon Peter said to them, I'm going fishing. They said to him, we are going with you also. They went out and immediately got into the boat, and that night they caught nothing. Sounds like somebody fishing with me. But when the morning had now come, Jesus stood on the shore, yet the disciples did not know that it was Jesus. Now, you've seen a few examples of that where Jesus, after his resurrection, was not recognized. I haven't had time to really study that out, but there's at least three times you can you can see that there were some followers of his or disciples that he walked to, with on the road to Emmaus that didn't know who he was when he's in the garden or when he's yeah when he's in the garden where the tomb is after his resurrection he's not recognized though he's having a direct conversation with somebody who knew him intimately she ought to have known that he wasn't the gardener but in any event there's more than one example of that that's also true while Jesus was before he was crucified too, and he was walking on the water out towards the boat, they thought he was a ghost. They didn't recognize him for who he was until he spoke to them. So in any event, that might be another, another day or what have you. But they had caught nothing. They did not know it was Jesus. Verse 5, Then Jesus said to them, Children, have you any food? They answered him, No. And he said to them, cast the net on the right side of the boat and you will find some. So they cast and now they were not able to draw it in because of the multitude of fish. Therefore that disciple whom Jesus loved, John, said to Peter, it is the Lord. Now when Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer, gar- he put on his outer garment for he had removed it and he plunged into the sea. We do things at times that don't make a lot of sense, I guess. You know, you would think you would take off your clothes before you plunged into the sea, but it's not what happened. Verse 8, But the other disciples came in the little boat, for they were not far from land, but about 200 cubits, dragging the net with fish. Then as soon as they had come to land, what did they see? They saw a fire of coals there, and fish laid on it and bread. Jesus has been, (laughs) he knew exactly where they were. He knew exactly what their need was. And he's been preparing breakfast for them. And so Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish which you have just caught. Perhaps he's going to cook even more. Simon Peter went up and dragged the net to land full of large fish, 153. And although they were so many, the net was not broken. Jesus said to them, and I think this is just fascinating, come and eat breakfast. Yet none of the disciples dare ask him, who are you, knowing it was the Lord. Jesus then came and took the bread and gave it to them. As a host, he dished out the food and likewise the fish. This is now the third time Jesus showed himself to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. Isn't that fascinating? There's a real life example of God doing exactly what is being pictured here, preparing a table before you. You prepare a table before me. Here's Jesus, though it wasn't fancy digs or fancy meal, he's cooking breakfast. Not only has he cooked the meal, he serves the meal to them. What do they get to experience in that moment, though? Come back to our three Ps. Provision, they get to experience his provision to meet their present need. His presence, they get to share a meal with him and his protection. He says, when I'm there, there's nothing that you need to be afraid of. Because I'm with you. So what a fascinating New Testament example of that. And the questions that I had as I was thinking about, you prepare a table before me. Are you satisfied with the table that's set in front of you? God has prepared a table in front of you filled with everything that you need to meet your every need. You didn't prepare the table though. The host, the gracious, loving host, prepared the table for his beloved guest. He put it in front of you, and he filled it with everything that he knew you needed. Are you satisfied with that table? Or are you convinced that what God provides for you isn't enough? It's not the right things. It's not your preference. It doesn't have enough sugar in it. Very convicting to think of that. He spread a table before you. And are you satisfied with that? Has the enemy convinced you that God is an inadequate host? Has the enemy convinced you that God is leaving you hanging? That the table that he has spread before you is lacking in some way? And I'll tell you what, at different times in my life, he has convinced me of that. I've needed to adjust my thinking. I've needed to be reminded that the table that God prepares before me, the provision, the presence, and the protection that's involved in that is everything that I need. I'm not missing anything if God's the one providing. So we move on to before me. You prepare a table before me. The combination of you prepare and before me, it reflects an intimacy between the host and his guest. You prepare before me. There's this intimacy. You're the beloved guest. He is the loving and gracious host. Yet another reminder of the personal and intimate relationship the believer possesses possesses positionally and is to experience practically with the Lord. You are a beloved guest of the good shepherd. In this metaphor, I mixed metaphors there by adding the shepherd part into it. You are a beloved guest of the loving and gracious host, the host. In this case, being God himself. You're not missing anything there. God wants you to experience practically that sense with him that he is personal and intimate God who's concerned about you personally. Positionally, you are a guest in the sense of the host. He'll never let you go. But in terms of sitting up to the table, the table's been set. You prepare before me. You prepare this table before me. But then sitting up to it, taking a chair, taking a seat at the table, that involves a positive volitional response. You've got to choose to do that. But the table is prepared nonetheless. It's available nonetheless. It has nothing to do with you in that sense. The question is, will you practically avail yourself of the provision of God, the presence of God, and the protection of God in your life? So, so far, we see before me, in the presence of my enemies, if you finish out the first half here of verse 5, you're going to have 21 personal pronouns so far. I, you don't need to be keeping track. I'll keep track for, you, for us, but 21 so far. And the primary idea being communicated by David is, God does this all for me. God does this all for me. You prepare a table before me, just as all those other examples that came in front of it in more of that illustration of the shepherd and the sheep. But grace is what takes center stage in this interaction between the host and the guest. You have this picture of the gloving host and his beloved guest. But it's, it's not about merit. It's about grace. That's what takes center state. It's completely one-sided. The host undertakes to meet his guests' every need. That's the picture being shown here or being drawn here by the psalmist David. The guest simply receives what is provided. That's the only part of the guest in this. So the host undertakes to meet every need, the protection, the provision, the presence, and the guest just enjoys that takes it in, receives that. Now, could the guest refuse that? Well, yeah, practically speaking, positionally it can't be refused, but practically it can be refused. The hospitality of the host, the king of heaven, it can be refused in the sense of not availing yourself practically in a moment experientially of the provision, protection, and presence of God in your life. Now, the question is, shouldn't that recognition That this is grace. This is all God's grace. Shouldn't it produce a natural love response toward him? And we just covered this at the men's Bible study on Friday, but 2 Corinthians 5, 14 through 15 says, for the love of Christ compels us because we conclude or we judge or we contemplate, we consider the facts, but we come to this judgment. That if one died for all, then all died. And he did die for all. For what, with what purpose in mind, we have our Heine clause there, the that there, that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and rose again. So does that mean there isn't to be any kind of a natural response to seeing that the the host, the loving host provides for you his beloved guest, he sets a table before you that has absolutely everything necessary for you on it in terms of provision, in terms of living life with him and experiencing his presence, in terms of his protection for you while being a guest under the roof of his home? I mean, the natural response to seeing his grace is that we respond to that grace. We see how much he loved us, and then we want to live for the one who loved us. We want, let my life song sing to you. Let the song of my life be a song of praise to you, to lift you up. But then we have this last clause here, so that should happen. question is, will it happen? But we have this last clause in the presence of my enemies. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. To accept another as a guest at one's table was to set aside any enmity and to assume responsibility for the safety of the guest while in your dwelling. That was culturally true, probably even more true than it is today. But there is some sense of that even now. If you're in somebody else's home, you're not concerned with, you're not primarily concerned with providing the safety. You're in the safety and security of of their home, of their nest, of their mini mini little fortress. But that was the cultural norm there. And you can see examples of it throughout the Bible. Some of them very morbid. Some of them very evil. Uh, you can think of Lot when the angels came to Sodom and Gomorrah. There's another prophet who went to stay with somebody and there was that aspect of how the host was supposed to be providing safety. It didn't turn out that way. It was an awful story in the Old Testament. But there's times where you see that host assuming that responsibility of providing safety for his guests. And that's what David is getting at here. That's where the primary part of the protection comes from. So you have the provision and you have the presence more with the table setting part of it. But in the presence of my enemies, that's what really brings out this idea that while I'm a guest in of the host, the host is the one that's going to undertake to protect me. I don't have to worry about that while I'm in his dwelling, while I'm in his home. To sit at God's table is to enjoy sustenance, fellowship, but and safety from all enemies. Now, why can you feel secure as a guest at the table that God provides? And it comes back to, if you turn, if you haven't turned back to Psalm 23, when you look at, when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why is that though? Because you were with me. Same thing here. When I'm a guest in the home of the host and I have the table that he's provided in front of me, I also have his safety and comfort. I feel I feel at peace. I feel secure. That's the word I was looking for. I feel secure. Why? Because he's with me. Since God is the host, the presence of enemies is irrelevant. If you're under God's protection and care, what fear do you have? What fear do you have of the enemy? The all-powerful God of the universe is by your side. If I'm dining with him and enjoying a meal at the table he prepared before me, I have no concern about my enemies. I ought not to. Because he is with me. And David is careful to talk about both the hostile people that you might come into contact with, in verse 5 here, but also hostile circumstances from verse 4. Well, in in verse 4, when I was going through the valley of the shadow of death, that's not specifically focused on people. That's just hard things in life, dark places in life that God might direct us through. Now he's talking about enemies, more of a sense of people. So hostile circumstances, hostile people, the conclusion is the same. God is going to care for you in every emergency you find yourself in, whether it's a physical enemy or it's some kind of a situational enemy or danger. Very powerful. In the presence of my enemy, I can have complete security and safety knowing that you are with me. And that's not to say that enemies are not real and present. He says this is happening in the presence of my enemies. David isn't saying there's now no longer enemies. He's saying, you prepare a table before me in the presence of those enemies. Meaning, I can enjoy your protection, the safety and security that comes with recognizing your power, your ability to care and protect me. That I can enjoy that in the face of my enemies. Enemies are real and present. This isn't a scenario where there may or may not be enemies. There are enemies. And there are always enemies facing the believer. They're internal. They're external. They can take the form of adversity, trouble, distress in life. That can be an enemy. My greatest enemy is I don't have enough time. Sometimes you might feel that that's your greatest enemy. So it can be broad. It can be somewhat narrow and specific there. But with security comes this sense of rest. That's something that should come on at this. When you're thinking about a banquet table, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. there's this sense of rest and relaxation that can come only from the presence of the host, the loving host with his concern for his beloved guest, who is you. And this, David is saying this, you prepare for me this table in the presence of my enemies. There's a sense of rest. Now, if there's a sense of rest, what isn't there? Fear. What isn't there? Anxiety. What isn't there? Worry. What isn't at this banquet that the loving host of the universe is providing for his beloved child? There isn't stress. There isn't worry. There isn't anxiety. There isn't fear. Now, the question is are you stressed out? As you sit here, right here today, are you stressed out? Are you anxious? Are you downhearted? Are you weary? Are you lonely? Are you scared? I don't need to see hands. I know that that's true of some of you. One of those things is probably true of all of you. I don't want to say that dogmatically, but if we're going to have the list be that long, stress, anxiety, downhearted, weariness, loneliness, or fear, what's the solution to that? Come sit at the table. Come sit down at the table that he's prepared for you. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies, all enemies, sadness, loneliness, fear, anxiety, the pressures of life. Come sit at the table. It's prepared. The banquet is prepared for you. God's provision is not limited to favorable circumstances in your life. God spreads out a table of provision, presence, and protection in the face of difficulty. That's what we mean here by, in the presence of my enemies. How can we have that confidence? We have to remember a few things about our God. Remember that God alone is the sovereign king. You see this in Second Chronicles 26. O Lord God of our fathers, Jehoshaphat is speaking here. Are you not God in heaven? And do you not rule over all the kingdoms of the nations? And in your hand is there not power and might so that no one is able to withstand you? Does sitting, does sitting at the seat, at the table that God has prepared in front of you, should that give you that sense, even in the face, in the presence of your enemies, of complete rest? security and safety. What else do you need to remember? Nothing is too hard for him. If you're at his table, nothing's too hard for him. That's where there can be freedom from anxiety, from stress, from worry. Behold, I am the Lord and the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? That's what the prophet Jeremiah reminds national Israel about. But he wants to remind you about that too. The last part is remember that in him, There is always victory. There is always victory. It is one thing to survive a threat. That's what happened in verse 4. I walked through the valley of, I got through that. It's one thing to survive a threat, but it's quite another to turn it into triumph. This has this sense of I'm having this celebratory banquet or feast in the presence, right in the faces of my enemies. That's real victory is I have this triumphant dinner because I now have this table set before me by the King of kings and Lord of lords. And as he provides that table before me right in the face of my enemies, I have triumph. Not triumph through anything that I've done, but triumph through him. The banquet feast is taking place right in front of the enemy. And it reminded me of Second 2 Corinthians 2.14 that says, Now thanks be to God who always, not sometimes, always leads us in triumph in Christ. Or Romans eight thirty five and 37 here that says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Are you standing in his love? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? Are there some enemies in view here? Yet in all of these things, what? We are more than conquerors, how? Through him who loved us. Conquerors, There's this picture of triumph and conquering in this phrase, in the presence of my enemies. I enjoy that not because of any victory I've won, but because I'm in his presence, because I'm under his protection, because I'm under his provision as I sit at the table that he's provided for me. You are the special guest of the King of Kings. If you're a believer, you are a special beloved guest of the King of Kings. As a believer, you are positionally a special guest of the King of Kings. Say that to yourself. Remind yourself of that. How could somebody like that be interested in you? I don't know. How could he be interested in me? I don't know. But he is. You have direct access to the King of Kings. As we think about his presence at that table. Go enjoy that. Enjoy that access to Him. He chooses to lavishly celebrate His love for you by preparing a meal for you, by dining with you, by protecting you. Do you see how special you are? David saw how special He was. Are you reminded again that you lack nothing whilst in His care, His provision, His presence, and His protection? And I end by saying, isn't this all mind-blowing? Isn't it just unbelievable to think that God would love me so? That he would care enough about me, to be concerned enough about me, that in these 21 personal pronouns, he would have a specific and direct interest in me? that he would undertake to make sure there was absolutely nothing missing from my life if I would just follow his lead, allow him to direct, take a seat at the table he provides for me. I pray that we all would be encouraged by that. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for your son. Thank you for your word. Thank you for this opportunity to gather. Thank you that we could celebrate who we are to you and what we mean to you and how much you loved us. Also, we could be reminded of who you are, your character, your provision, your presence, your protection for our lives. Pray that we would want to take advantage of that meal that you have provided for us. That we'd want to take a seat at that table, that we wouldn't just see it set before us and not avail ourselves practically of the benefits of being your honored and special guest, your beloved guest pray that that could impact all of our lives in a practical way. In Jesus' name, amen.